Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other co-host. All right. Still in the midst of uh, Season 2 Coppola cast, uh, we are going to take a bit of a tangent on this episode as we discuss possibly at the end of our One from the Heart episode. And we are going to talk about Hammett, directed by Vim Vendors, uh, released in 1982. Yeah, uh, this will be an interesting one. Um, hey, so uh, what wine are you drinking? That looks good. That looks like a nice glass of red wine. It is a dark red. I didn't have any Pinot Noir to go with this noir movie. Uh, oh, yeah. I should have totally thought about that. <laughs> uh, I have the Diamond Collection Merlot 2017. Ooh. Merlot, which I'm sure we've had before. At this point, I think we've run through nearly yeah. <laughs> Merlot has fragrant notes of plums, currants, and anise. I remember that word. Still <laughs> you don't want to say that word wrong. <laughs> Lively flavors of blueberry pie, cherries, toasted oak, delicious with beef tenderloin. Yep, we've definitely had this wine before. Grilled lamb, chops, and aged cheeses. Um, and it's, it's just as good. It's a, it's a dark red, a stronger red, so it would uh, pair better with uh, some food. Uh, kind of take the edge off, though. Drinking it on its own, it's uh, it's it's not bad, you know. I like it. I'm drinking one I've never had before, and I think you did have this one, but this is the uh, Sophia Blanc du Blanc. Ah. And, and it, it came comes wrapped in like a pink cellophane, as you would expect, and it's just a really good sparkling wine. Interesting enough, Blanc du Blanc, that is a white wine made from white grapes. Usually white wine is just made from, you know, red grapes, but they don't leave the tannins in. But this is actually a white wine made with white grapes. And uh, it's there's nothing really written about it. Like this is a – because usually there's a little story or what it's supposed to be, but this just says Sophia, Blanc de Blanc, Monterey County, 2018. And then there's lots of words on the side. It says revolutionary, reactionary, poetic, sparkling, ebullient, effervescent, fragrant – Cold, coming of age, bestowing of presents, petulant. Sure. <laughs> but uh, it's good. It's really, it's really dry. See, and I learned how to talk about these things. It's very dry, and it has a lot of effervescence. So it's like a really good sparkling wine if you want, like, the bubbles and the dryness. Like, this, is, this would be a perfect New Year's Eve uh, bubbles, I think. Mmm. Yeah. It's the kind of bubbly where that kind of burns your tongue. <laughs> you know, when it's like super, super bubbly. I like, I like that. We'll have to uh, snag a bottle of that for uh, my New Year's celebration. Do it. And of course, we're still... Distanced New Year's celebration, which means just me and my wife. We're and I... still in COVID, so we're doing this remotely. Uh, but you know what? It's what's great is we haven't slowed down. We like we won't let some disease-ridden world slow down our podcast about movies. God damn it! Yeah. 
So whose turn is it to do the plot? I think it is my turn, unfortunately. Oh, good. <laughs> I was really dreading that it was going to be me because I was because uh, this this is kind of a convoluted plot a little bit. I got confused as I do easily, and uh, so I'm glad that it's you because I was just going to like kind of paraphrase the Wikipedia page. <laughs> so you can do better than that. So I can have you do it. We'll see. We'll see. All right, right. So we'll get into why we're doing a Vim Benders film on our Francis Ford Coppola podcast after the plot description. But, uh, all right, so in 1990, ugh, I already screwed it up. In 1982, <laughs> Hammett was released by Zoetrope Studios, directed by Vim Benders. It's based on a novel by Joe Gores, which fiction fictionalizes... Uh, Dashiell Hammett, the person, the author, actually uh, wrapped up in a you know one of his noir crime stories. So it's kind of like an Ellery Queen situation where the author of crime books also solves crimes. Murder, she wrote too. Right. <laughs> so uh, Coppola favorite Frederick Forrest is. Dashiell Hammett is set in the 20s in San Francisco. Uh, it starts out with him uh, writing a story, and Peter Boyle is the main character, and it's kind of like a typical uh, noir ending, like standoff situation. Like, you give me the money, you give me the goods, and, and he stops, he finishes. All right, his new novel is done. And then who appears at his apartment, but Peter Boyle, the, a person, not the character. And he's playing Jimmy Ryan, who was uh, Hammett's old like mentor for back in the days when they were both Pinkerton detectives. And he's the inspiration for this character. Hammett's neighbor kind of girlfriend is also a character in his story. And so I thought this was all going to play in a bit more into the actual plot, but it doesn't. And I'm stalling because I don't want to describe all of the intricacies of the actual plot. But Jimmy Ryan, uh, he's looking for this missing girl, uh, Crystal Ling, and he wants Hammett to help him find her because he knows San Francisco and all the you know, seedy spots. So they go... And they go looking for this girl, and right away they're attacked. Hammett has his novel with him for some reason. He loses it, and so then he loses everything. Jimmy Ryan has disappeared. He loses the novel, and they don't have the girl. So then him and his kind of sort of girlfriend, played by Mary Lou Henner, and his, uh, like, lively uh, taxi driver... <laughs> Eli, played by Elisha Cook Jr., are on the case. Of course, he has detective friends that are like, "Stay out of this one, Hammett. Are you up to your, you up to your old tricks?" Like, <laughs> and it proceeds basically like a standard noir film, which is a difficult, which is a weird thing to say because, like, every noir film is kind of its own unique creature. But he talks to all these underworld characters. He talks to this uh, 
uh, he talks to this rich uh, Chinatown club owner. He talks to uh, someone that's basically a Sydney Green Street character from Maltese Falcons, you know, big guy. Uh, he's got a uh, someone tailing him. He meets up with this like reporter that also kind of wants to be a detective and keeps following him around. And he finds out that Crystal Ling was involved with a blackmailer. Uh, she would, you know, get these powerful men, both criminal and legit, like San Francisco politicians into compromising situations. A blackmailer would take pictures through a two-way mirror and that's what all this is about. She was gonna, you know, blackmail them with the photos. Jimmy Ryan is, we think, has been hired to try to find her. But actually, it turns out they're both in on this scheme. And then all the rich, powerful people, they want Hammett to go get the, the photos back from the girl. And then it ends up in a showdown on the San Francisco wharf, not unlike the start of the movie. Peter Boyle gets shot and uh, Crystal Ling gets taken away or killed. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, no. oh no, I've lost all credibility. <laughs> that good, eh? <laughs> you remember the end of the movie? <laughs> it was that. It was it's that. It's good, it'll be a surprise to our listeners as to whether she gets killed or not at the end of the movie. I won't, I won't give it up. I'll, I'll leave it a, a mystery. And the movie ends, and the Wikipedia synopsis was no help. It was not, <laughs> it was not more detailed than what I just described. So, like, when did, when did you watch this movie? I watched this movie, um, wow, two weeks ago. So... Uh, me, we did the podcast earlier, but some stuff happened, and we're doing it now. So time is yeah. more. Time I watched is- it two weeks ago as well, and I, th- I find it fascinating that both of us kind of don't remember a lot about it, <laughs> which is maybe you know not to dwell on the negative, but maybe that that says something about this movie uh, that we can't that we sat through it. It definitely exists as a movie. It, it fills up a running time. Images are, you know, in front of your eyes. And yet something didn't quite connect or register with us. And I think that's the case with the few people that saw this movie <laughs> as well. Uh, this movie was a huge flop. It made, I think, something uh, of the long line of $42,000 at the box office, which is... That's bad. <laughs> That's not a lot of money at all. That's bad. Uh, not an indie documentary. No, very it's, bad. Yeah, and and what's what's weird is that critics kind of liked this movie. Like when when I was looking through the reviews from the time, it was well liked by a lot of critics. A lot of critics were like, "Oh, what a great homage to these old movies." Oh, this is a fun or what a fun deconstruction of of noir films. Even though I don't feel it feels that way at all um so it is interesting that like it was kind of critically liked by a lot of people but nobody came to see it probably because it stars frederick forrest which is not a person 
that anyone wants to go see Star Wars. Like, why did Coppola put all his money on Frederick Forrest? It's so weird. So this is like the, the fourth movie they've made together now. As he, he was in the conversation, totally fine in that. Great in Apocalypse Now. And then our last episode, One from the Heart, is him really pushing, like, no, no, Frederick Forrest is the man of the 80s. Like, this is the guy that you want in the movies. And then here we are again with a movie that he produced, or dot, 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 with Frederick Forrest in the lead again. So why don't you talk about why are we, so why are we doing this movie, AJ? All right. So uh, Fred Roos, who was involved, he uh, involved with the making of The Godfather, read this book, Hammett, wanted to make it into a movie, and tried for years to get it made at Paramount. And Coppola then starts up his Zoetrope Studios. And so the movie's going to get made there. It's going to be one of the movies that Coppola just like, you know, shepherds through and someone else directs it. And he's going to give someone else the chance. Originally, uh, Nicholas Rogue was going to be the director. And Coppola always wanted Frederick Forrest to be the lead. And the studio that was going to distribute it, uh, whoever, Orion, uh, was like, who, like, come on, like, what? What is it with you and Frederick Forrest, Coppola? Uh, but then he got, Frederick Forrest got a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for The Rose in 1979 that kind of bumped up his, you know, his cred. So, like, this guy's on the, on the rise now. But by then, Nicholas Rogue dropped out. Vim Vendors came in, and it was going to be Vim Vendors' first American film and Vim Vendors he's one of those guys like he makes his own kind of movies man yeah <laughs> um, like in um, the commentary for One from the Heart Coppola tells a little anecdote about how he was giving notes to Harry Dean Stanton like you know you, you do this this way or say this this way and Harry <laughs> Dean Stanton says to Coppola like hey like, if you don't want Harry Dean Stanton, don't hire Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> <laughs> I just Too imagine sorry. him saying that with his disco stew wig and the polyester. <laughs> uh, and I feel that way about Vim Vendors. So they couldn't, even though this is based on a novel, the novel's right there, just, just adapt the novel. They kept having trouble uh, adapting it and went through God knows how many screenplays and then Vim Vendors decided, I'm just going to direct it myself. And he was married to Ronnie Blakely at the time. And decides to cast her for a small part, like a character just has one scene. Then, uh, as he's rewriting the script, that character becomes more and more involved. And it's like a uh, Peter Sellers and Pink Panther type situation. Where all of a sudden, during the making of the movie... Like, wait a minute, David Niven was supposed to be the star of this movie. Now it's Peter Sellers, and then Ronnie Blakely's getting all these scenes, and it's being rewritten day to day while people are kind of waiting around for the pages to be done so they know what to shoot. And then Coppola finally calls it like, hey, let's stop, edit together what we have, you know, and we'll see. So they do that. And nobody likes that cut except for Vim Vendors. 
<laughs> they decide, well, we're going to shelve it. And it gets put on the shelf of inventors, goes back to Europe. Coppola, and this is where we'll get spotty. Coppola then does one from the heart. Vim Benders comes back, decides to stick to the original script and completes the film, which is then totally different from the version he shot and something like he estimates 80, 90% of the film uh, is totally different from his first version. Mm-hmm. And because Coppola, Coppola was really on Vim Vendors, like stick to the script, don't get too weird. And he was very involved. And then uh, the film comes out, it you know, kind of flops. And then, well, it does flop. Then all these years later, when it finally gets a DVD release, then people start to wonder, well, like, did Coppola take over and some there are rumors out there that it was Coppola yeah. doing reshoots, yeah. not the vendors. And we'll get into the the possible evidence for this. At some point, Leonard Malton wrote just as a throwaway line when talking about Hammett that like, oh, and executive producer Coppola stepped in, stepped into the director's chair. So I haven't been able to find that original article. Yeah. And there was a uh, review of the DVD from, I think, the AV Club. Yeah. That said, uh, it's a shame there's no commentary on this to finally put to bed the rumors of who actually directed the film. So it's possible, though I think unlikely, that yeah. Coppola directed the version we actually see. Though, of course... Yeah. In interviews, both he and Vim Vendors have stated that it was Vim Vendors's film. <clears throat> yeah, and like the the AV Club art. I read the AV Club thing. It was interesting because it doesn't just say maybe. That article pretty much is like, no, Coppola redid this movie. And what's interesting is the Wikipedia page, Coppola's Wikipedia page, the part about Hammett. The it it references that Coppola directed it, but it only uses as its evidence that AV Club article. And the AV Club article has no actual backing or notations saying why the reviewer says that Coppola made, you know, made the second version or shot most of it or whatever, you know, like, and it's, it's interesting. I think it's like, I mean, in a way, Coppola is sort of the bad guy in this story, whether he directed it or not. I feel like what's interesting, it's like he did to poor Vendor's what he had to suffer through in a way with some of his other, like with, or what he feared in his other movies, like Coppola always wanted complete control of everything he did. And like with Apocalypse Now, like obsessed over it and, you know, like we kept fighting the studios to finish his movies and, and, you know, and, or the deals he had to make to make sure he got Godfather 2 the way he wanted. And like, he's always been touted by himself that he's like this, I am this true indie filmmaker, even though I get all this money to make movies. I make the movies that I want to make. I'm my own producer. In fact, I will make my own studio. And then you bring in someone like Vin Vendors, who is definitely his own filmmaker, definitely has his very, very unique way of making movies. And it's almost as if Coppola couldn't help but try to make it a Coppola movie, whether he directed it or not. I mean, just think about like if David Lynch had been rich enough to make his own studio if David Lynch had a studio, like this is David Lynch Studios. If you were making a movie in that studio and David Lynch is your producer, 
And in the case of Hammett, like Coppola is listed as second unit director. So you have David Lynch around all the time. You're going to end up trying to, you're going to end up making a movie that, and if you're using his people, it's going to kind of feel like a David Lynch movie, whether or not he directed it or not, he's just kind of around. And it's just like, that's, I think one of the big problems with Zoetrope as the studio was that I think Coppola really had this big vision of the kind of movies he wanted to make and he couldn't help but kind of insert himself into these other pe- these few other people's movies that were made. That is something that is touched on in the Coppola biography by Michael Shoemaker, where there's uh, quotes from people saying that no director with clout would want to work there because Coppola is a director himself. So he is going to be like inter- interfering for, I mean, with all the negative connotations, whether he did really interfere or not. So you're not going to get to make like your own movie there because the guy watching your shoulder isn't just an executive producer. That's like, Hey kid, go make this movie. Not like Roger Corman. You know, it's another filmmaker, like a distinct auteur filmmaker who's been watching you. Yeah. (laughs) He also has to be a businessman and who give Orion a uh, product, you know, a movie, a product that they can sell. And been vendors mm. in films, they play in America at the art houses. They're not, yeah. And like, I guess the original version, like according to it, there was an IndieWire interview with Vim Vendors from 2015, because they recently did a Vim Vendors retrospective in New York at that time. And Hammett was not included in that retrospective. And so the interviewer asked him about the movie being like, is it true that Coppola took over and Vin Vendor's like straight up is like, no, absolutely not. There are two versions of that movie, both completed. And I directed both of them. He said he directed the first one. It was finished. He turned it in. They thought it was too slow because it's a Vin Vendor's movie. <laughs> Did they not see the movies he made? Like even like, cause this is all because he made American friend, which people really liked a lot. And that's like, his version of like a Hitchcock movie, but it's very, have you ever seen that movie? No, like it's, a Vin, it's a Vin Vendors movie. So it's slow. It's long shots. It has that Robbie Mueller cinematography, you know, where you're just kind of hanging back and watching these things play out. And so that's kind of what you're going to expect if we're going to get Vin Vendors to make a movie. And I think the first movie was like that. And it was more about Hammett as a writer. And I guess Orion and Coppola wanted more fantasy. They wanted to be more like, no, no, he's like, solving crimes and he's doing more of this it's like a sam spade character and so then that was part of the re the overhaul and i guess also the character peter boyle played was originally played by brian keith and brian keith could not come back for the second one and i think the reason why ronnie blakely well, yeah was in all this stuff was because she was dating jim vendors at the time so like he was definitely writing for his you know significant other <laughs> and giving her a lot of good stuff. And, you know, and I guess he, he swears he directed both versions. And I guess the original version was all on location in San Francisco. And then the second version was only on Zoetrope Studios. They like threw all the out, like the real places away. And some of the, all the, the few exteriors that exist in the movie that we watched are the only, is the only footage left over from the original movie. I guess the, that was all pulled like you see there's a shot of Frederick Force walking through clearly the actual San Francisco skyline behind him. And it's a weird shot because there's no other shots like it. Cause most of the movie has that kind of 
one from the heart artifice of like matte painting backgrounds and models and uh, rear projection and like that kind of like studio look that Coppola was really pushing for and one from the heart and just wanted Vim vendors to emulate that, I guess. I swear that one of the sets is straight up a set from one from the heart where Frederick Forrest gets knocked out after meeting with the, uh, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, the rich uh, underworld businessmen. It's the scene in Big Lebowski after Lebowski meets with Jackie, Jackie Treehorn and he gets knocked out and then has, you know, the musical fantasy daydream sequence. That scene is in this movie or this scene is in that movie. Yeah, he gets knocked out, drugged, and then has a dream sequence where he's in the desert and it's all like matte paintings. And I swear it's the junkyard set from One From The Heart. It, 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 why wouldn't it be? <laughs> like, why? It, that set was there. This, you know, that saves you some money, especially if you're do, already doing a reshoot. I wonder too, like, if it's like a poltergeist thing where like they signed something and they can't say that the other person did it because like by everyone's account, Spielberg totally directed poltergeist and not Toby Hooper. Like, and I, but, but, but in interviews, Spielberg's like, Oh no, no way. No, it was all Toby Hooper. You know, like, and so I wonder if it was just sort of like a, like an agreement or something of like, I don't want to, we can't say that I did it, but I did. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so when we get into this whole, who's secretly directed a movie kind of thing, part of it is this like fantasy of like, Oh, well, you know why poltergeist is like, you know, so good or why it's such a different toby hooper movie is because it was actually a steven spielberg movie and with poltergeist there's a lot of evidence in that favor that toby hooper may or may not have had problems with substance abuse at the time Mm -hmm. uh say internet articles and i think and the whole setup the first 10 minutes of poltergeist and i swear the first 10 minutes of et are practically identical this like middle class family early 80s we're just doing our normal thing and like oh dad is like this and he's kind of amusing and the kids are like this and they're kind of amusing and it's just all american early 80s <laughs> and it's the same it's like well this is spielberg's aesthetic and then when you throw in the special effects yeah special effects are used in the movie and you think Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like gritty and grimy. Yeah. So it's this total reverse aesthetic. And I mean, even when like, Toby Hooper did uh, Life Force, you know, a sci-fi, you know, movie with a budget. It's kind of like gritty and uh, it's got some gross effects to it. And there's nothing too gross in Poltergeist. Anyway, and there's also a like I think in the making of Poltergeist, Spielberg is even there. He's like, oh, I'm just here as producer, just to like check things out, you know. When uh, Zelda, when Zelda Rubinstein came to the Alamo to show, they showed Poltergeist, and she was there. She said she was on the set for two weeks, and she only had ever gotten direction from Steven Spielberg and got zero direction from Toby Hooper. So she was like, this is definitely directed by Steven Spielberg, at least the scenes that I did. So. The, uh, the, the parts, <laughs> the, the stuff that I read, for me, that 
put me in favor of Spielberg being the real director of Poltergeist is there was an interview with Jerry Goldsmith, who uh, the composer, that says he only ever talked to Spielberg about post-production stuff. Yeah. And, and two, there is a photo of Steven Spielberg talking to Craig T. Nelson, and he's doing the director hands. He's holding oh, man. The out, two, like, yep. The rectangle. <laughs> if that's not evidence, I don't know what is. <laughs> I mean, there's a photo, like one of the many photos in my screensaver, is uh, of Sofia Coppola talking to Bill Murray on the Sevos translation doing director hands. There's a whole like montage of directors doing director hands at people. Now, that's not something the producer does on the one day he shows up just to kind of check things out. You know? No, no. Only person who does that maybe other than the director is the cinematographer. Those are the only two people that would give those two L-shaped director hands making that square because you're visualizing what the move people are going to see. It's sadly, there isn't the evidence for Hammett. Like there is, like I dug deep trying to find anything leaning towards this way or not. And all we really have is the movie itself. Like the movie certainly looks like a Coppola movie. I mean, like it has, like I said, the artifice that A Wife Heart has, the lighting in Hammett's apartment feels just like the Godfather, like the way it's dark and the light through the blinds. But I mean, a lot of it could be due that it's, it's, it is Coppola's art director. It is uh, Dean Tavolaris. So like if you're using the dude who makes the sets for all the guys' movies for your movie and it's within his studio, it's going to kind of look like his movies, whether Coppola directed it or not, it's going to have the stench of Coppola on your film. As you said, all we have is the film itself, and watching it does not help. Like, you watch Poltergeist, and, I mean, if you showed it to someone with no credits, you showed someone some Toby Hooper movies, and you showed someone some Spielberg movies from that era, they're probably going to think it's a Spielberg movie. If you show this with no credits to someone and show them American Friend and then, like, One from the Heart, they'd probably say that it's a Coppola movie, but to me, this doesn't feel like a Coppola movie. It doesn't feel like a Vin Vendor's film. And that is because of the story they're telling, which is a noir story. And not just a noir story written by one of the big noir guys, which I had to look up their names because I always get them confused. Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and James M. Cain. I've only ever read a couple books by these guys. But the movies, they're like kind of similar. The noir films from the 40s, Bogart's in all of them, I think. <laughs> but yeah, there's something uh, uh, similar to about it, especially the detective stories by Dashiell Hammett and to uh, some extent, uh, Raymond Chandler and The Big Sleep. This really reminded me of The Big Sleep. It reminded me of The Maltese Falcon. The films that came after it reminded me of The Big Lebowski, which is just a send-up of a noir movie. We're setting yeah. noir in the early 90s. So it's really beholden to that structure. And it's based on a novel by someone that wanted to put Dashiell Hammett in a noir, in one of his noir stories that he would write about. So everything in it really feels like a throwback to the 
novels to the films of the 40s, like the Maltese Falcon, the way the characters talk, the way they, they dress, not just that they dress in the 40s, but it looks like they're wearing costumes, like they got to the old dusty costumes left over from the 40s and put them yeah. on. It doesn't feel like they're wearing new clothes. And the fact that they're all on sets and back in the 40s, everything was done on a set. Yeah. And even the fact that the story itself, though, there's uh, plot lines with like prostitution and human trafficking. And it's made explicitly clear that a gunsel is a like gay boyfriend. In Maltese Falcon, Sydney Greenstreet has a gunsel. Like it might be Peter Lorre. And Bogey says, like, keep your gunsel away from me. And if you knew slang at the time, you knew he meant, uh, you know, boyfriend <laughs> away yeah. from you. But it's, that's clear. If you take out all that stuff, this could be made in the 1940s. And I yeah. looked up the rating, but I wouldn't be surprised PG. if this was a PG film at the time. Yeah, there's no swearing, think, no violence. There's yeah. no, like, sex in it. There's allusions to sex. Yeah, I wonder like I, I wonder if the Vim Vendors move version, and I'm sure it did, felt more like a modern version of this kind of movie. And I think that's sort of the main problem with Hamlet for me. Is they're not trying to push it to make it anything new. It's not like Chinatown, the movie Chinatown, which is like taking this film more thing, but definitely bringing it into the seventies way of filmmaking and and ha- adding this sort of like these thematic things and these and this visual stuff that you couldn't do in the yeah, 40s. It really puts the dirty grit into noir that like you knew was there in noir films and that's why you liked noir films because it hinted at that this stuff exists and then in Chinatown like we're swearing, there's violence. Incest, but- like we're just going to be outright about it, you know? And this movie just kind of takes too many steps back to being like, Mortar's going to make it like that. But it's like, it's a weird, it's kind of exists in a weird limbo where it's like, it's not good enough to have it feel like a true throwback. It's not like the good German or some movie that's trying to feel like an old movie. And it's not fresh and new and interesting enough to feel like some current person looking back and making a comment or their version of an old thing. It just feels like kind of a stale it's film war movie, like not even one of the good ones. And it certainly doesn't help that the word Chinatown is said a heck of a lot in this movie. Cause it, every time someone says, I'm going to Chinatown, you're good. At, it's in Chinatown. You just can't help but think of the movie Chinatown made what five years, six years before this. And like, which is a really amazing movie and a really amazing fresh take on film war. And then this movie just like, is not that it's not, like one from the heart is a weird modern version of these old musicals and Coppola trying to do something interesting and different and using modern technology mixed with old technology to make a throwback, but also a comment and make something from this old thing. Just like how Star Wars was with sci-fi or whatever, like or Indiana Jones was with the old serials, like other movies from this time. They were, were referencing the style of the old yeah, thing, but tell but bring it in a modern way. And this movie does not do that. And my guess is the the original Vim Vendors movie did. Like I couldn't help but think it would be like American Friend. It would be like him trying to do a Vim Vendors 1980s version of film noir, which everybody hated, I guess. And sadly, 
that version is lost forever. Like I guess Vim Vendors went to Zoetrope and was like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we put both movies out? Like you put my weird art version and your new, you know, make the studio happy version and we can have them exist as the same thing. Wouldn't that be interesting? And the person at Zoetrope said, oh yeah, I'm sorry. We threw it away. It's gone. <laughs> Don't have it anymore. It's been destroyed. Your version of the movie is gone forever. <laughs> Which is why even do that? Why, why, like, really, there wasn't enough space to put like a few reels of film on the shelf. You couldn't keep a print of it. You had to just throw it away. When you think about some of the movies that did get director's cuts, um, and I mean not to knock the film because I kind of like it, but the Mel Gibson film Payback. Yeah, I have the director's Uh, cut of that. Yeah, like it came out. Like, that's a movie, all right. Saw it with my dad, and then, you know, never thought about it again. And then there's a director's cut of it, and the director's cut's, like, totally different ending. It's, like, it, it, it's harder. It's more cynical. And, like, yeah, it was the 10th anniversary, and they were going to put out the DVD, and the director, Brian Helgeland, says, like, hey, do you have my original, like, footage around there? Can I do a director's cut? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. That footage is right here. And so he did a director's cut of payback which is fine it's cool that he got to do that but it's it's just then weird that like you know they kept the foot and i know it's totally different studios totally different time but that footage stayed around somewhere (laughs) footage from this movie did not it's just like it's sad to think about like even this week it was announced that coppola is putting out a director's cut of godfather 3 and he's now done director's cuts of that uh, Cotton Club, uh, the Outsiders, like Apocalypse Now, which we just did recently. Like, so he's able to go back because he kept all the footage for his own movies, <laughs> but they threw away the Venice thing. Like, you think that part of like if Cop- like I just don't see why Coppola would be okay with that. Like, if he had known, and you think he would know. Like, if you're the head of the studio, I'm sure you got to clear with somebody before you just toss. The, a person's entire film that you spent money on you know like he must have signed off on that right like if you're the head of the studio and the producer were you just yeah, like yeah to. throw it in the fire like throw it away like we don't need his version around like doesn't that kind of like that's really shitty <laughs> like you think Coppola would have respect for this filmmaker to be like no no like you know we don't want that version but you know what let's keep it you never know just keep it around like, what, what harm can it do having some canisters lying around a film, even if it was a room's worth of footage? Like, Coppola had the space. He had a whole studio at the time. Or he has a whole vineyard he can store it on. Like, you need to throw away this poor guy's movie. I mean, maybe it was Orion who made that throw-it-away deal. But you think you whoever would hope that Coppola... The, whoever bought the space of Zoetrope Studios has <laughs> been like, what's this? Yeah, what's, what's this crap? Throw it out. <laughs> but like it's always sad when you think of it's like a magnificent ambersons where you're like you never will know what it was actually like because some schmucks threw it away and you're just always the hope that like some version exists in somebody's attic and someday someone will be like what i my great-grandfather died and he has the magnificent ambersons in his attic like uncut the original version like let's remaster this because i mean that has happened like it's rare but like they found uh, like original version of uh, John Cassavetti's Shadows like at some yard sale or something or there was a lost 
Three Stooges movie, it was found. Oh yeah, um, the last the original um, uh, Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, yeah. up in Argentina, uh, print in you know the archives. And they were able. Uh, to- I wonder how a German movie made its way to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but like, there's a, like, I hope it would be great if someday someone was like, we found Hammett. Let's give them vendors to do a, a director's sign-off version of it. Because yeah, we just don't know. We just have this weird version. What's interesting is someone should really ask Mary Lou Henner about it, about who directed it. Because do you know this weird fact about Mary Lou Henner? No. She has this rare mental thing and it's, it's been proven where she remembers every moment of her life, like every moment of her life, she remembers vividly, like every second that she has lived, she can oh, recall. Like magnetic memory. Yeah, she can recall that. So if anyone can set, you know, like write who directed this movie, it would only be Mary Lou Henner if oh, she doesn't lie. <laughs> TCM needs to send out Ben Mankiewicz now to get this down like they sent yeah robert osborne to livy de Havilland to get all of her stories while she's still around and norman lloyd who is still alive that's amazing <laughs> but let's get mary lou henner to tell us like have her get hooked to a lie detector and say who directed hammett do you remember who directed you like on the set was it Vin vendors he says it was or was it coppola so if anyone knows mary lou henner out there ask her and then message us and tell us what she said, because I want to know. <laughs> She's the only one I trust to tell me. <laughs> um, uh, interesting enough, Vim Vendors clearly was very, uh, you know, whether he directed it or not, the, the new version, he was very affected by the whole process. Well, how could you not spend years and your movies taken away? But he, during the time, made several movies sort of like commenting and dealing with him making Hammett. Um, he made a movie called State of Things that's about a director making a movie. Interesting enough, definitely a Coppola connection. A uh, producer in a movie is played by Roger Corman and, the Gar- and Alan Garfield is in it from Conversation and One from the Heart. So there's definitely a Coppola connection with State of Things. Then he made a documentary called Reverse Angle it's also about him making Hammett and dealing with this thing. And then he made another movie called Lightning Over Water that he made while he was doing, I think, the reshoot of Hammett. And he, it's a documentary and he takes a break from filming or between breaks to help Nicholas Ray try to make a movie in, I think, New York City. So definitely, like, if, if you're a Vim Vendors fan, check out those three movies. They, they comment and kind of play with this idea of Hammett. Give you no clue or idea of, to this mystery we're trying to solve, this uh, Dashiell Hammett level mystery of who directed Hammett. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, The Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, there's a quote here from Frederick Forrest that I want to read, and it's in the uh, Michael Shoemaker biography. 
uh, that Frederick Forrest preferred the original version that they were working on. And he said he didn't think that she, Ronnie Blakely, was taking over the film. She and Vim were married, but I'll tell you one damn thing. Her performance was more interesting than anything in the film they made later. She was perfect for the part. It was like the Mary Astor part, a quirky sort of thing, as if he was writing the Maltese Falcon, not some nebulous shit they did later. In the, final, <laughs> in the first version of the film, Vim Benders and I were trying to put it all in Hammett's attitudes. We read all of his books and did everything we could to get all that in there. I was caught in the middle. Francis was my boss. I loved him and he got me the job. But Vim Benders was my director and I respected him and loved the way he was working. Wow. So even he doesn't like the second version. Yeah, even he <laughs> thinks like that the first version was more interesting and I mean, it probably was because this version, it's its a straight up like, it's an homage to the uh, 40s noir movies, but in such a way that it, it's its totally just a replication. That's mm -hmm. what I meant. Instead of homage, it's a replication of the 40s noir movies so that it nothing really feels Coppola about it. Nothing really feels Vim Benders about it. I mean, these are two guys like that have a distinct, style and Coppola has ambitions and ideas and like stuff like the conversation and apocalypse now you know they're, they're challenging ways of storytelling and Vim Vendors you know is a slow paced but emotionally loaded uh film that uh, filmmaker that like just sneaks up on you with all the humanity in his movies like in Paris Texas and Wings of Desire which are films I love and I feel like this story would have to be kind of generic feeling, no matter who directed it, even if say you got Steven Spielberg to direct it. I mean, it would be more showy, but because it's like, no, we're not making a Coppola movie. We're not making a Vim Vendors movie. We're not making an art movie. We're making a noir movie. So it has to have these things in it. They have to happen this way. It has to look like this and sound like this. And I mean, they cast like Elisha Cook Jr. was in the Maltese Falcon and he was in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. It's Samuel Fuller has a small part. Samuel, in yeah. And it's just got all these. Um, and the plot of this movie, though, it is difficult to recount while you're watching it. It's not that difficult to follow, especially if you've seen some of these noir movies it's kind of like by the numbers noir stuff where oh here's the scene like in the big lebowski where the coens are doing their version a send-up of the noir movie we're gonna take the noir story but tell it our way here's the scene where he meets the rich guy and gets drugged and has a dream fantasy and now he meets uh this tag-along guy like uh john Polito shows up like, hey hey i'm uh we're working the same case i'm a brother seamus <laughs> you're an irish monk you know like that that kind of character is in this movie it uh it definitely feels the second version the version that exists currently feels like a by the numbers following the rules sort of movie like it definitely feels like a let's make the money people happy here's the exactly on paper the movie you wanted it's not an interesting movie. No audience is going to want it. 
but here's what this is why we're redoing it is because you want this uh and i guess the experience made it where vim vendors never again shot on a soundstage and never again was not the producer of his own movie like this scarred him for life where he was like i will always have the final say in my own movie and i will always be outside or in actual places <laughs> in a like studio what? it is like, like ptsd like Clive Barker with Rawhead Rex, one of his short stories got turned into the, a movie, Rawhead Rex, and it's so bad and so far away from his original story that he said, you know what, from now on, if anyone makes one of my stories into a movie, it's going to be me. And then the next year he made Hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. Like that Vin Bender doesn't shoot on the sets. Because uh, one of his films I have seen, I haven't seen many because the dude made like way more movies than I ever thought. He does a lot of documentaries. Yeah. Um, I saw his documentary, Pina, which was uh, uh, not really a documentary about the uh, dancer Pina, but it was like an homage to the style of that choreographer. So he just had people do these Pina choreographed dances, but out in the world. So someone is doing this modern dance in front of a subway station. They, they, were, they weren't like in studios or if they were in a dance studio, you know, it was done in a very interesting way. But what I remember most about that documentary that made it interesting for me is that it was these dances, which normally would be done in a recital hall just done out in the real world. <laughs> he's that scarred by Hammett reshoots that he can't yeah. even shoot on a stage for dance. Like he's like, no. And, and what's also interesting, and it was, must have been because of the time when he was making Hammett, uh, the main cast of Paris, Texas is half of the main cast of One from the Heart. It's Natasha Kinski and Harry Dean Stanton. So clearly <laughs> he met them I, my guess is like they were making they were like there was meetings around the city there's some you know they must have met them because it can't be an accident Coppola wanted to like uh, to have an old studio so Nastasia Kinski wasn't just in this movie she was now on the Zo she was a Zoetrope player so whatever yeah. next movie he made she was going to be in and she was yeah. around learning how to do like tightrope walking and so she probably was and Harry Dean Stanton probably was around learning how to perm his hair <laughs> that's what that would be from one from the heart i guess the most <laughs> but like he like vin vendors must have been at parties and met them while they were having meetings for one from the heart to be like i like these two people i want to put these two people in paris texas a you know a movie that's all outside for the most part a lot outside um there's also an interesting david lynch connection you know that i used him as an example earlier but like this is one of the first movies Jack Nance made after Eraserhead. And he's great in this movie. <laughs> and he play he just plays like some weird side character, someone who's just following Hammond around. He's up to maybe something nefarious. Oh, he's and the reporter character that Yeah. Like, Gary Silk. Yeah. And so you get to see Jack Nance in a non-David Lynch movie, which is rare. Like the only other one I can think of is Meatballs 4. But Jack Nance, and what's great is you get what you want from Jack Nance, which is him kind of sadly shuffling in front of brick walls, 
and you know darkly lit hotel uh, apartment hotel corridors. So you're getting the eraserhead Jack Nancy you want in this movie, <laughs> like a little weirdo just kind of walking around an urban landscape. And then you also have uh, David Patrick Kelly, who later is in Wild at Heart of Twin Peaks as a character, the punk. And it's another great, just David, you know, this is like a post-Warriors, David Patrick Kelly, just a little weirdo like he always is in movies, just great. Um, but I guess, according to Vin Vendors, David Lynch was on Zoetrope. He was one of the directors that was going to make a Zoetrope movie. And his offices were, or he was doing stuff next door to where Vin Vendors was doing stuff on Zoetrope. So David Lynch was there, like kind of figuring out like his next movie which maybe would have happened if Zoetrope didn't fail. There would have been a David Lynch Zoetrope movie. Who knows what that movie was or is or ended up being. I wonder if that's how David Lynch met Harry Dean Stanton, who was later in Wild at Heart and Twin Peaks as well. Like, I wonder if it was from being around these people on Zoetrope in 1980, 1981. I, I would love it if there was a documentary about Zoetrope Studios or if they had had just had like cameras rolling all the yeah. time to document what was going on. And we Why isn't there a documentary about that? That should totally exist. Because it's an interesting experiment, an interesting failed experiment. There must be footage, like the making of one from the heart has footage, like they would have a party every Friday and all this stuff like that. I would love to see a documentary about the Zoetrope experience. Or at least an Aaron Sorkin uh, miniseries about the behind the scenes of running an entire studio and it folding. <laughs> oh, yeah, it definitely. Yeah, I'm surprised that hasn't been greenlit already. Everything's a TV series now. But I won't, I won't dive into my rant about how <laughs> I wish people just made movies instead of 12-part TV series is now. And maybe now there's a season two. And I'm like, how are you getting more out of this? How? <laughs> Um, another interesting fact is that during the making of this movie, Mary Lou Hanner and Frederick Forrest got married to each other. And then by the end of the movie, they weren't married. <laughs> they weren't married anymore, which is maybe why he speaks more highly of Ronnie Blakely's performance over <laughs> Mary Lou Hanner's. Maybe there's some bitter ex-husband yeah. in him. And this movie also has really good hair pieces because Peter Boyle and Frederick Forrest are definitely two very bold men, but in this movie, they are not. Yeah, Fred hair. he was over over 40 in this movie, and at some point, someone that says, Hammett, like, Hammett, you're 34. <laughs> like, that's, mm, like, I mean, I know the 20s were a different time, but it's actually the 80s. That's a rough 34. <laughs> yeah, all due respect. <laughs> like. Would you... Um, Ever want to do Vim Vendors for the director's wall? Would you ever be able to take on that? I'd be interested because I haven't seen many Vim Vendors movies. I knew he had a lot more than I had than I was aware of. But looking at his IMDb page, it's like, holy shit. I would only be intimidated by tracking all this stuff down. All these documentaries, these music videos, these short films. I mean, the dude has like, uh, how many titles here? 70 credits? Wow. Um, so tracking all that down to me is like really intimidating. His feature films, however, like 
what was uh, what we had in the Bim Bender section on the director's wall at Vulcan Video, RIP. Uh, I mean, I would go through all that because I haven't seen American Friend. I haven't seen any of his pre his pre Hammett his American Hollywood phase movies. I've only seen um, Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire, and that documentary Pina, and I loved all three of those. And I mean, they are like slow. It's hard to describe to people to like like these are great great films like what's it about like well i can give you the plot and it sounds like it shouldn't be this long (laughs) but like you watch it and you're so caught up in the cinematography and in the quiet intimate moments going on and it's his, his films are slow burns at least the ones i've seen they're slow burns but unlike a, a horror movie or a thriller movie, like basically like Get Out is a slow burn. It's just kind of building and building. And then when it gets to the end, like, bam, here's all of the horror, all of the thrills. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, the Luca Guardanini Suspiria is a slow burn until the end. And now here's all the horror stuff that you've been waiting two hours to see. It's finally here in this <laughs> one scene. And you're like, yes, thank God. And it's all good, though still, still kind of boring because that movie is pretty boring Suspiria <laughs> yeah the new Suspiria I'm not a fan of it never saw it <laughs> um but his films instead of tension or suspense it's emotion and then it just hits you it hits you in the final act all this emotion and and you understand that it's been building up the whole the whole film the whole film with Harry Dean Stanton in Paris Texas and with uh who is it Bruno Gantz in wings of desire and then like all lays on you and you're like oh my god like i feel everything that's been set up that i don't i didn't even know you were setting this up that's what a slow burn is i think uh, as the critic william bibiani said that a slow burn means that you finally realize that you've been on fire the whole time (laughs) <laughs> someone didn't just come up and set you on fire you've been on fire the whole time and now you finally realized it that's what a slow burn is it's it's great like vim vendors after him it really only made he made in a row his three best movies i think like he made paris texas wings of desire and then until the end of the world like which i consider to be three really really good movies and like you wonder if Hammett had succeeded, if Hammett hadn't had to be reshot, would those movies exist? Because all three of those movies are very big and open. And those definitely are not soundstage movies. Those are movies where like, you're in the desert, you're in Berlin, you're until the end of the world is like their whole fucking world. You know, like those are very big, spacious landscape movies, you know? And, and it's too bad. Like you can just imagine like, like before we watched before we watched Hammett, I was hoping in my mind, I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be great! It's gonna be like Frederick Forrest is the detective writer. We're gonna be in like San Francisco, and it's gonna be just like these amazing big long scenes and shots, and there's like slow burn." And it wasn't that. It does not feel like a Vin Vendors movie. It doesn't have that Robbie Mueller cinematography. It's just like, why did you hire Vin Vendors if you didn't want a Vin Vendors movie? It reminds you of when you watch like a really shitty subdued Nicolas Cage movie where he's just like following the script. And you're like, why did you hire Nicolas Cage? 
you want him to open it, this movie up and like do his thing, why just have him go through the motions of being a regular person? That's not what we want from Nicolas Cage. Why did you hire him? Hire a different actor. Like if you wanted Hammett to be a certain way, they should have just hired some TV director or somebody to just phone it in and make some by the numbers film. Like hire someone who does an episode of, you know, Columbo, you know, and just make some regular thing. Like don't get an auteur like Vim Vendors. Like Vim Vendors, it can't help but be Vim Vendors. And then he did that and everyone was like, we hate this, burn it. And now we're going to force you to make, and I think it's got to be the only movie that he's made that feels kind of like a regular movie, which is why it's not very good. I was expecting, I was really expecting, well, this is going to be something so weird that people at the time are like, what? Yeah. No. Like, I am not in the mood for this artsy stuff. File it away. That's what I was expecting uh, from this film and no it's just it's so standard and by the book that it is utterly forgettable <laughs> it can vim vendors got a when i was looking up the nominations and i think it's just a testament to uh uh the respect that vim vendors had the film did get a director nomination for vim vendors at the 1982 Cannes film festival or no, the film was nominated for the Palme d'Or with Vim Vendors would have been the recipient thereof. I think that's just got to be just like, Vim Vendors made a new movie. Like, of course, we'll show your movie and we'll <laughs> consider it for the Golden Palm. Yeah. And then it's one of those movies, and then I watch it and like, oh, this is like when, like, oh, Shrek played at Cannes. <laughs> you know, like the big studio movies take take their big video <laughs> films to can and they don't compete they just show them but then it has the clout of like well this this played at can yeah this was also an edgar award nominee an edgar Allan poe award nominee for best motion picture what the heck's an edgar uh they they give out awards for like mystery and suspense uh, uh literature and films okay Oh, well, I'm glad we watched it. It certainly is an interesting conversation. But I, I would say at the end of the day, I don't think Coppola directed this movie. I, I think, think it was so Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors forced to do it to appease a studio. I, I, I agree. Also from just knowing everything about One from the Heart, Coppola was so tied up in One from the Heart, like, the planning, the casting, like we're going to do rehearsals in his electronic cinema approach where we're going to rehearse the film so much that we're just going to say, you know, action and film the whole film because you've already rehearsed it so much that I don't think he would have like literally had the time to direct, uh, secretly direct another movie, though he did in the biography of, by Michael Shoemaker, uh, take a few passes at the screenplay, but then like three other people did as well. So it's not really that, you know, like, well, it, it's Coppola's script on screen. It's just really like they couldn't pin down exactly what they wanted on screen. They wanted it to be like clear so uh, wide audiences could understand it, but they still wanted it to be 
you know, uh, like a, a an artsy, edgy noir film, and then it ended up just being somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah, I was not, I was let down. I wouldn't say the movie is straight up bad, but there's nothing particularly memorable or notable about it other than it's, uh, you know, uh, troubled production history. Yeah, I would, I would not recommend this movie to be seen by anybody other than the, it's just fascinating that it exists in the story behind it. But as a movie, it just sort of like, it just kind of exists and you're kind of like, okay. And then you forget about it. You watch it and then you just kind of forget. About it. Yeah, the only people I might recommend this movie to are like the diehard noir buffs. I don't think they would like it, but I think they would be interested yeah. in it. And yeah. it's appropriate that we talked about this movie for noir Vember. Is that a thing? Is that what we're in? Noir-vember? Yeah, Noir-vember. It's a thing that at least people tweet about on November 1st. And then I haven't seen much more tweeting about Noir-vember since then. But we've had a lot of other stuff uh, to deal with <laughs> since, since November 1st. <laughs> um, is there anything else to talk about with this movie? I was disappointed that, I mean, maybe because he was burned out from doing already, but like Frederick Force is kind of not nothing in this movie. Like you don't have the oddball weirdo that was in Apocalypse Now. You don't have the pathetic anti-hero of one from the heart. He just sort of goes through the motions in this movie. He just kind of matches the style of the movie. Like he is just kind of doing a basic sort of detective character. There's nothing really interesting about his performance. And like, it seems like he put it all in the first version. <laughs> and then when he was called back to do the job again, he's just sort of like, okay, well, yeah, I got to do it again. <laughs> he's kind of was spent by that I, point. I agree because if you're, if the first movie was about blurring the lines between reality and fantasy, you know, this guy that writes mystery stories and now he's trying to solve a mystery and it's you know, much more about the attitude, capturing the attitude of the original Hammett movies. Like that's something where you'd expect uh, more of the, I guess, intensity of, uh, of like his Apocalypse Now performance. Yeah. And the flip side of that would be if it, he, it was a total fish out of water story, like which, and I mean, Dashiell Hammett, I think... I mean, in real life, Dashiell Hammett, I think, was a detective at some point, right? Isn't that kind of what this movie alludes to? Is that he, that he was, was a, a Pinkerton? He was a Pinkerton detective. So you couldn't really do the whole fish out of water story if he's like, uh, you know, like a, just a, like a like I'm just an average guy and I got caught up in this uh, thing that I'm way in over my head. You know, that would be more of the kind of uh, realistic. Uh, person he plays in one from the heart and this yeah. is really like all right like i'm gonna act but i'm not really <laughs> like doing i'm not really going for anything yeah and yeah you've got like great character actors in this film and it, but to no effect really yeah i think my highlight to me the highlight to me was seeing jack nance in a movie it's not a david lynch movie he's not amazing in it but that was exciting. Um, yeah. But this kind of ended Coppola's, uh, you know, streak of trying to make Frederick Ford a superstar. 
It reminds me of post-Avatar when they're trying to put Sam Worthington in movies. They're like, he's the guy. And we're like, no, that's not what we saw Avatar. It's well, not Sam Worthington. <laughs> that was a dark time for us all. <laughs> I remember those movies. I saw whatever, The Debt. Not, not to say anything bad about Sam Worthington. He's totally fine. But he's not like the guy that we all want. He's not the really He's not the reason Avatar blew up, you know. It's no. just why Sam Neill continued being a character actor, a great, successful, one of the best character actors after Jurassic Park, which he is yeah. the lead of. He is the straight-up lead of Jurassic Park. Yeah. Main character. And then, you know, like, what was Sam Neill's next movie? Like, well, surely it was just as big. Like, actually, I don't know. He probably made like five movies in one year after that. It's just <laughs> being this like this quirky character actor. I can be scary. I can be sympathetic. Whatever. Like you it's, it's really hard. Like it's really rare and hard when a character actor crosses over to leading man. Like it's really when it succeeds, it's it's few and far between. I think the few I can think of is Steve Buscemi's been able to do it. Like he carried Boardwalk Empire. He was a star of a show, and he is definitely a character actor and a star of that movie. And then strangely, like Bob Hoskins has no right being a leading actor, yet he succeeded a lot doing it. Like, he was a star of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then after Who Framed Roger Rabbit was huge, then he's, the, he's, the, he's Mario in the Mario Brothers movie. And he's like, he's this Bob Hoskins superstar. Um, <laughs> I guess he didn't succeed so much, but I love him. Well, he was like, like, the main character in like, like the Long Good Friday. Yeah. Right, like, like you know, big like, Hollywood movies, though. Yeah, okay, you're you're right about that. Um, like, he, he's he's always kind of yeah, he's always been was a lead, but he's not like Brad Pitt. You know, he's not like the big star. Yeah, and it's, you'll have you'll have the reverse where they'll have like Hollywood guys that then want to that wish they were character actors like Brad, like Brad Pitt, Pitt. <laughs> like Dick Hall, who are like I've yeah. got like the prettiest, most handsome face. But I yeah. and a few movies like Ocean's Eleven or you know, whatever yeah. Dylan Hall does. Yeah. To like play into that. But then I'm going to do like some really weird shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like Frederick Forrest is a character actor. Yeah. He has uh, no business being the star of a movie. <laughs> Coppola as producer, uh, as, as I read through the uh, bio, bio, I'll maybe get more of a sense of this. But as producer, he like produced some of his own movies. He was like executive producer on like Paper Moon, just because he was part of that director's company. He was producer of Black Stallion, because that's a zoetrope film. That film he was also involved in, though not as much as with Hammett. Um, The bio I read says that he was just disappointed with the drafts of the screenplay that kept coming in. He was like, no, that's not it. That's not it. Then Carol Ballard, like, all right, well, I'm just going to make this fucking movie. And he did. And it's, I mean, it was a hit at the time and is a classic in, you know, for certain people. I saw it when I was a kid. I haven't seen it since, but it's one of those movies. You say that name and it sticks in people's head. They, they remember it. And then after this, it looks like, you know, he doesn't produce a whole lot aside from his own films. And I wonder if, um, yeah, he's only got a handful of credits throughout the 80s. I wonder if he, like, 
learn to like back off from this if he is going to produce something like I mean, he's it's apparently a producer on Lionheart. The wait, the Van Damme movie. Let me click on this link. Just or the Eric Stoltz movie, or is it like which Lionheart? Let's see, nineteen eighty-seven. That is Eric Stoltz. Okay. Okay. Is it, so, there's not, also a Van Damme movie called Lionheart. But I mean, I think it's like it's hard enough. In couple knows, is it's hard enough to make your own movie and fight your own battles. You don't need to be involved in some other person's creative vision. Like it was a like Zootrope was a great idea, but it clearly just can't work. <laughs> Especially if you're as driven and creative as Coppola, you're gonna just try to like make everything the way you want it to be. It's it's gonna be hard. It was hard for him to do that, and he couldn't do it. Yeah, like people become producers. Like actors become producers, so they can have more control over their, their own content. stuff directors and writers become producers so they can have more control. Like Gary Marshall, who I was lucky enough to uh, go to a Q and A of, and he gave like a talk about his whole career. I don't even know why he was at Texas State University in San Marcos giving this lecture. And I got to go, my roommate like snuck me in because he knew Gary Marshall was a film guy. And Gary Marshall talked about how like, he started out as a writer. He wanted to direct, but he, he knew what he needed to do was become a producer. Because if he became a producer, then he could hire himself to direct the screenplay that he wrote. <laughs> Gary Marshall. Smart man. Gave, he also gave some, maybe the best advice I've ever heard in my life, with all due respect to my parents. <laughs> the final thing he said was, kids, if you're going to fail fail on your own terms because it was something you did not because something it's something someone else talked to you into exit to eden was all me <laughs> one of his best movies in my opinion <laughs> let's I, do a gary marshall season of the director's wall let's go through every i would do gary it <laughs> there, there is a story behind exit to eden i know there has to be because you watch that movie and it's so weird it's so weird and disjointed <laughs> And I am certain that Dan Aykroyd and Rosie Donald were added in after the fact. There is no shot where they are in the same shot <laughs> as Rebecca De Mornay and the, the young guy, whoever he is. Well, like the move, the book is not a comedy. Like it's an Anne Rice novel that's like a BDSM, you know, novel that's not funny. And then they made it into this like Rosie O'Donnell, Dan Aykroyd comedy. I love that movie. People hate that movie a lot. I think that movie's great. <laughs> All right. So, where... big, so when we do the Gary Marshall scene, when we do season seven of the directors, when we do Gary Marshall, I'll be very excited to talk about Exit to Eden. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going a bit long, longer than we expected to for Hammett. But the, the main thing is we've gotten two potential uh, follow-ups. Vim Vendors. And Gary, Gary Marshall. <laughs> so I'm excited our next episode is going to be The Outsiders and we are going to watch both versions the theatrical version and the complete novel uh, so I'm excited to dig into that I've not seen that movie in quite some time I've only seen one version I don't remember which one I watched I just at Vulcan I grabbed a copy I didn't know there were two versions and so I, I don't know what I got I don't remember how long it was <laughs> the complete novel extended cut is significantly longer, I think, than yeah. 
yeah. uh, that. So I'm interested in that. In Coppola news, they're coming out with a Blu-ray of Godfather 3, the director's cut, uh, which I'm guessing Coppola, bored during COVID, decided to dust off Godfather 3. Yeah, he was doing. He redid Cotton Club. Grandpa's going wild with the director's cuts. I'm, ex- I'm excited for uh, the Captain EO director's cut we'll, we'll have next year. <laughs> Michael Jackson's been completely removed. <laughs> completely removed. And replaced by Mr. Rogers, a person we all love and think is great. So, like, it's uh, that's so that's a, so that, put that on your Christmas list. Godfather Three Blu-ray. It's got some weird new title. What's the title of it? It's um like the Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone, or like Spoiler. the Saga Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. It's like three. It's two sentences like jammed together. I love and, it. And we will definitely watch that when we get to Godfather yeah. 3. We're definitely going to review both versions of that now. Like, Coppola is making our, our podcast longer. He's make, giving us more homework yeah. uh, every day that he's alive, uh, which is great. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get a Hammond director's cut. Maybe he will surprise us all and say, ha-ha, I've been sitting on the original version. I have it, and I will give you the director's cut. Behind some barrels of wine. <laughs> well where else can we find you aj i'm on twitter at ajgo85 on letterbox under the same thing i also blog on uh cinema then and now.blogspot.com where i just finished reviewing horror movies for october and since oscar season for me anyway is coming up i will be reviewing some past oscar nominees and you can find me also on the World is Wrong podcast, which I do with my good friend Andres Jones, where we would talk about movies like Hammett if we had liked it and thought the world was wrong about it. But I don't feel that way. So we won't be reviewing this movie. But uh, around the time this comes out, we'll be in our holiday season and we'll be doing Jack and Jill, which is very exciting, a movie that I love a lot. Uh, so happy Hanukkah, everybody. Uh, happy holidays. Uh, listen to our Jack and Jill episode when that comes out soon. Happy holidays. Uh, Everyone stay safe. You can communicate with us directly on Twitter at the Director's Wall. Also email us, directorswall at gmail.com. And uh, we will see you in the classroom, I guess, for The Outsiders.